closed your Bibles, would you open them again to 1 Kings chapter 19 and uh, verses 1 through 18. And the title, and I think it'll become apparent, um, the title of this section I've given to this section is Psychotherapy or Theology. What does that mean? Well, I think that in part, Elijah has gotten a lot of bad press. And it is true that Elijah grew discouraged and was depressed and spiritually so. But I think there are reasons for that. And also, we discover in this passage the sympathy and the care and the ongoing sympathy and care of God himself, of the Lord, of Jehovah, and of the actions that Elijah uh, will take in this context. And so we ought not to just look at this text and turn it into kind of uh, a lesson on depression, though I think it does do that. And in fact, I intend to preach more than one sermon from these 18 verses. But I want us to have a a, a bit of an overview of the passage this morning. And in looking at this particular passage, we cannot look at it in isolation from the rest of what we know about the prophet Elijah. And there are a number of things that we have discovered, perhaps worded differently, but a number of things that we have discovered from the text up to this point. First of all, Elijah was a man marked by God's favor. Elijah enjoyed the privilege of knowing God and of hearing God and even of being used by God himself. And so that's where we begin, and we begin always as we think of a man or a woman's relationship to God, that in Elijah was a man marked by favor. And as a result of that, Elijah was also a man that was marked by faith. Uh, Elijah was a believer, and not only did he believe, that is, have faith, but he was also marked by faithfulness and loyalty and he did what he was asked to do. Thirdly, Elijah was a man also marked by fortitude or, or strength of character, of resolve. I mean, he stood for the Lord and for truth and for righteousness and, and uh, in, in the context of, of enormous uh, pressures to do Otherwise, one writer has said, here was a man of fabled strength. And Elijah was a man marked by God's fidelity, God's faithfulness, not only favor in a general sense or an initial sense, but also God's fidelity or faithfulness to him throughout his labors. And I think even in this text, um, in which many seem to see only, or or only able to see 
uh, Elijah's uh, depression and rooted in a kind of a, a manic psychosis of some sort. Elijah was also a man marked by fearlessness. He actually stood up to Ahab, which was no easy thing to do uh, in a context of uh, tremendous uh, pressure. It's the Ahab who is the weak one and who could not stand up to his wife Jezebel, but Elijah stood up to Ahab. And it is true that Elijah was a man now marked by fear, by fright. But of what was Elijah afraid? And so I raise the question, and then we'll answer it a little bit later. Was he merely afraid of royalty? Was that his great fear? And did he run away principally because of fear. Now, it does say that he left in order to preserve his life, and we'll look at that in just a moment as well. But was that the only thing that was driving Elijah? Or was it a fear of apostasy and unbelief? And the fact that, as we'll see in a moment, Nothing really changed, even after this great act on Mount Carmel and the Lord and the people responding, surely this is of Jehovah, or words to that effect. And so Elijah was a man marked by fear, and he did flee. He was running again instead of ahead of Ahab. He's running south and away. But what does all of that mean? Was he just running away? Or was there a plan? Was there something in his mind and something driving him? Well, he ends up at Mount Sinai, and along the way, he has a variety of experiences. So let's look at this text then under several headings and just work our way through, and then we'll come back in future sermons and look at some particulars. First of all, notice from verse 3 the sight of Elijah. It says that Elijah saw. Now, originally, um, Hebrew did not have any vowels. You had to guess what the vowels were. It was just a string of consonants, and the consonants ran together. And the Hebrew word for see and the Hebrew word for fear have the same consonants. And so some, because of Elijah's fearing or the, 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 the fear that is, that is driving him have chosen to translate it as Elijah fear. But that's not the traditional translation and I don't think it's accurate. It's, it's an accurate reflection on what's going on. But what the text literally says is Elijah saw. Well, what was it 
that he saw. What did he see? Now remember the context that Elijah had received a message from Jezebel. Ahab had gone into his wife and told her everything Elijah had done. And her response was to send a message to Elijah that you've got 24 hours to live and that's it. Now the language is interesting. Ahab tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done. But the focus of the passage is not on Elijah. Elijah is merely the tool of Jehovah. It's the Lord who acts. Fire comes down from heaven and fire consumes the sacrifice and fire consumes uh, the rocks and fire consumes and licks up the water in the trench. It's the Lord who acts. But But Ahab and Jezebel have no filter. They have no category into which to place what has taken place except their God had failed and Elijah had acted and Elijah had killed the prophets of Baal. And so Ahab reports all of this to his wife. Now imagine if you were there and and it's a contemporary scene. And so he's, he's telling her all that Elijah has done. And imagine her response is something like this. So? So what? He needs to die. Again, no category, no filter to see the hand of the Lord himself. And so Elijah sees all of this, and there's more. I mean, he's sees it, not necessarily that he was present in the palace, but he sees what's going on. But what is it that he really sees? I think this is really important. What Elijah sees is that nothing really has changed. And his fear is that nothing has changed and that nothing would change and that all that has taken place is for nothing. Nothing was going to change. And it was this that affected his equilibrium. He does not want to die at Jezebel's hand. Now later on he speaks and says to the Lord that my life is, is, is a waste. And it's, it's no better than, than my father's, and we'll come to that in, in due course. He doesn't want to die at Jezebel's hand, even though he would be willing to die and to be gathered to his father's Old Testament language for gathered to the Lord. It would be another evidence of failure. And so he doesn't want to die in shame, but rather he wants to die, if you will, sincerely. 
as a result of the Lord taking him through bringing about change in the lives of those around him. This display of power had absolutely no effect on Jezebel at all. It reminds me of John chapter 12, where in verses 37 and 38, and the text says something like this, the people remained in unbelief despite the signs that they had seen. The miracles in Jesus' day had no lasting effect. In short, miracles do not impress where the perspective remains exactly the same. Ray Dillard wrote, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little, but he says, and I think rightly so, it is striking that after the confrontation with the prophets of Baal, God took Elijah south, the opposite direction of Baal's dwelling, to the place where the nation of Israel was born when God entered into covenant with those who had left Egypt. It was in effect a geographic way of distancing Israel's faith from all that Baalism represented. So that's what's going on, is that Elijah sees that nothing has changed despite the wearying efforts uh, of, uh, of his being the tool in the hand of the Lord to bring about change. And so this is what Elijah sees, and it prompts Elijah to act. But secondly, in verses 3 through 8, notice the safety of Elijah. Where did he go? Well, again, we've already noted that he went south. He went in the opposite direction of where Baalism was, where Ahab and Jezebel uh, had uh, their uh, palace and dwelling uh, and where, where he uh, ruled, um, and that he goes south. And yes, he went to save his life, and there's nothing wrong with that, as long as it's done legitimately. In fact, preserving one's life is, is an application of the sixth commandment. But again, he went south, and he left the home of Baal. He went to Beersheba, which is the southernmost part of Judah. We often think of Israel, the borders of Israel being from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Well, he's gone to Beersheba, and then he goes even beyond Beersheba all the way to um, Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. And so he goes, and he's provided with rest, and he's provided with food. And yes, he says that he's willing to die, he wants to die. His life is no better than that of the fathers who had entered into covenant with the Lord, but who had Rebel. The fathers died in the wilderness due to their rebellion. He might as well die in the wilderness, even though it's not for rebellion. 
So he finds this tree, um, a juniper tree, literally a broom uh, tree, which grew up to uh, nine feet tall and gave him considerable shade in the desert. So he's preserved, he's protected, and he rests. He slept in the shade that was provided for him. Thirdly, notice the support of Elijah. In verses 7 and 8, we notice the kindness of the Lord. The angel of the Lord came to Elijah twice. Tom Lyons said that in a sermon he preached years ago that, that Elijah spent two nights in an angelic B&B. Well, be that as it may, um, he was given rest. He falls asleep, the angel wakes him up, provides him with something to eat. Elijah falls asleep, he wakes him up again and provides him and says that all of this is too much for you. So who is it then that is providing Elijah? Well, it's the Lord himself. The angel of the Lord. He's provided with what he needs. And this is the third time this has happened. He was provided with food from the ravens, the birds at Cherith. Bread at Zarephath in the house or in the home of a widow. And the bread and the cruise of oil or the, 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 the grain and the oil didn't run out. And so they had to eat. And now the bounty here twice, he's fed again and again, sustaining him for 40 days and 40 nights in his journey. This was God's provision for Elijah. Now notice fourthly what we might call the salvation of Elijah. There's a reference here to God's covenant promises. Elijah travels considerable distance. And we're told where he went and it's more than just a travelogue telling us that he went here and then he went somewhere else. He went as far away as he could possibly go in Judah to Beersheba, 100 to 130 miles. And then he went beyond to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, another 200 miles. So at least 300 miles he's covered in this period of time. One writer has put it this way. We're dealing with plan rather than panic. Again, Elijah's not just running away as if he's afraid to die at the hand of Ahab and Jezebel. And of course, he doesn't want to die at their hand. But there's something more going on. This is Moses' place. Horeb is where God met with Moses and God established that national covenant 
with the children of Israel, all of it took place right here. It's also the place where Israel rebelled against the Lord. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he finds the people engaged in idolatry. And so this is a very special place. It's a significant place. And it has to do with the acts of God and the word of God. And the covenant that God makes with his people. And surely all of this is flooding into Elijah's mind. And it's the very reason for him going there. He reflects and says that the period of time is the same period of time as under Moses. Here, God inaugurated a covenant with His people. Here was a place that was also marked by idolatry, and that's the very thing that Elijah is facing farther north. This is the mountain of God. In fact, it's referred to as the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. And so 40 days and 40 nights, as someone has written, identify Elijah as a second Moses. And we discover later that Elijah occupies a significant place even in New Testament days. Elijah is referred to as a man of faith and a man of prayer. Elijah is the third party on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses is present. Jesus is present. And Elijah is present. And they're talking. And what are they talking about? They're talking about what is about to come. Our Lord's death on the cross. And so how much of all of this Elijah knew at this time, we don't know. But certainly, it's significant that he goes where, he's de- where he does. So he's not just running away out of depression, fleeing I guess, as, as if he's a kind of manic, psychotic person. There's more going on here. And even something of Elijah's faith, discouraged and depressed as he is, and we'll come back to that in good time. Then notice, fifthly, in verses 9 through 14, the satisfaction of Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, my whole life has been a waste. I've been jealous for your cause. And... It's been a waste. I've been ineffective. Even though you came down and fire came down, my work has been ineffective. And the very people that I sought to teach defied the covenant. And so my life is marked by futility. And so the Lord comes to him again. Again, we see that the Lord has 
not abandon him. And he comes in what we call a theophany, an appearance. And Moses enters a cave. Some have thought that it's the same cleft in the rock that um, hid Moses previously when the Lord passed by. But the particulars that are mentioned here, here, here comes this great wind and then a great earthquake and then fire. And in each case, but the Lord was not there. That is, the Lord was not in those things. The Lord was not in the spectacular, the miraculous, the out of the ordinary, but rather in a still small voice, literally like a breath. It's the language, like a like a breath. Tenderness of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Again, God's great acts have to do, and God's great communication have to do, not with the spectacular, but with words. A whisper, the speech of God. Spurgeon said, the silence becomes audible. Something to be said for that. The silence becomes audible. God's voice is not heard in the noise and commotion and the spectacular. But rather in this whisper. And so after all of this, The sight of Elijah, the supply of Elijah, the sustenance for Elijah, the speech of Elijah. Now we find sixthly and finally the summons of Elijah. What are you doing here? Elijah answers. And in effect, he says, you no longer belong here. Go back to where you were. Your work is not done. And furthermore, you have resources. And he refers to two kings and Elijah's successor, the prophet Elisha. Go back to where you were. Your work is not done. You have further resources that I'm giving to you. And besides all that, you're really not alone. For I have 7,000. You just don't know who they are. And so Elijah is not alone. Elijah is not without help and neither are we. And the church is still alive and churches are still being planted 
and the gospel is being preached, and we may feel as if we've come close to the end of our rope, and yet that's not the case at all. If Elijah teaches us anything anything at all, Elijah must face God alone and also trust in Him and in Him alone. And not in the noise and the commotion and the miraculous and all of that. But rather in that quiet whisper of the Lord. We're also reminded in all of this that we sometimes have the mistaken notion that all we need to do is to present the word of truth and people will automatically flock to hear what we have to say. And I think this reflects the the limitation of evidence and trusting in evidence and things that can be seen. We have the notion is all we need to do is to present cogent evidence. I think I entered the ministry with that faulty perspective. All I had to do was preach and people would come flocking and running and believing. But the one thing I didn't count on and the one thing that that in a sense Elijah doesn't count on is the deadness of the human heart. And it's not just revelation that needs to be proclaimed, but also the illumination of God's Spirit to change the heart. Dale Ralph Davis wrote, The Lord's fire consumed everything, chapter 18 and verse 38, except the blindness in Jezebel's mind and the recalcitrance in her will. Perhaps one of the most important lessons to be drawn from the passage is that here is what we might call a theology of antipathy. A theology that includes a distaste for unbelief. Putting it differently, Elijah, or the passage begins with Elijah seeing, and what he sees is nothing has changed. In other words, Elijah cares, is moved by the idolatrous trend of the people around him. And so the real concern that flows out of the text and God's response to what Elijah sees and the Lord's provision for Elijah in that particular context, here's the question, do you care about idolatry? Do you care about indifference? Does it move you? Does it move you in a sense sometimes even off of your your equilibrium? 
indifference, idolatrous pragmatism, pragmatism. Again, to quote Davis, he says, what is it that you get despondent about? Do you ever get depressed for God's sake? It's a great sentence, and it's, it's worth much consideration. Do you ever get depressed for God's sake? Elijah did, and he moved in the right direction, including arriving at Sinai with a reminder of what God had done for his people to deliver them out of Egypt and to provide them with all that they needed to live out their lives in this world. And most importantly, there is this soft whisper that is the word of the living God to guide us, to direct us, and to encourage us. God's greatest work is not the flash and dash that so often people like to see. But God's greatest work today is through words. The words of His Word having to do with His covenantal promises, and His saving work in Jesus Christ. You know, I'm kind of encouraged and excited. I want to go back and look at the text again and see what happens to Elijah in relationship to Elisha in the next part of this chapter and then beyond. God has not forgotten His servant. God has not abandoned His servant. That God cares for him even in the context of this depression having to do with God's great cause. May we somehow know how to process that, to apply that in our hurried, busy lives that we live in the world today. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for this passage and for the help that it actually affords us. As we look at around us and we see your cause in decline, especially in the part of the world in which we live, and even in places which seem to flourish, like in our beloved Cuba, and yet from time to time there are events that happen, departures, and it It's almost as if we begin all over again. And yet, it is your word, your work, and you have not abandoned that work, nor have you abandoned your servants. So encourage us, we pray, as we continue to worship you and reflect upon the life of this great prophet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.